0: Uh, good morning and happy Easter again. If, if you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And I want to just say again, thank you. I want to commend you for doing something brave and visiting a new place. You know, it's often kind of at this point in the service, if you're visiting, where that question can start to arise at this point. You know, the point at which the preacher guy gets up front and starts talking. You know the question. It comes in your mind, maybe in your, your stomach. The question is, when is this guy going to stop talking? How long is this going to be? And that's a valid question. I kind of wonder the same thing. And I hope the, the, the answer is, this guy's going to stop talking at just the right time. But let's let that, uh, that question launch us into a few other questions, really important questions. In fact, a, a question-themed Easter today. I want to bring up some of the other questions that are are really important. I want to start the God's Not Dead series, kick off into it with a series of questions that are super important. Can we ask important questions today? Let me me ask for your help. What are some of the most important questions you've ever asked? Who am I? How about this? Some of us have gone to college. Have you ever asked the question, what's my major going to be? An increasing amount of us are compulsively revisiting this question all too often. Uh, Many of us in this room have asked the question, what's the name of my first child going to be, right? When am I going to name my first baby? Or how about this question? Who am I going to pick for the finals in March Madness? (laughs) Full disclosure, I picked Sparty from Michigan State to win it all. That was a monumental fail, but... Uh, Another question I got to ask on on December 2nd, 2005, I got to ask, to propose the question to the most beautiful girl on earth. I got down on my knee and I said, will you marry me? And of course, right now it's easier to to share that story because she said yes, and we've since had four beautiful babies that she's given to me. But I'm going to say that there's a question even more important than that. And today, we're going to dive into the great question. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me as we honor God's word. And Jesus himself poses the great question in Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn here. We're going to pretty much chill here. Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read the great question starting with verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others still, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Thank you, You y'all can be seated. God, please add a blessing, supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Amen. If you're a little bit familiar with the Bible and with church things, you might know that in the last few thousand years, we've applied special names to certain special passages of the Bible. And this, I think, is one of them. Uh, I'll give you some other examples. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, and he tells all his disciples to do stuff, which you kind of listen extra when someone that was not that someone that's not dead, that that was dead, kind of tells you to do stuff. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations. Then he went up in the clouds. That's the great commission. He told them, do this mission, and I'm going to be with you. Commission, the great commission. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all commandments? And he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We've since deemed that the great commandment. And when Jesus says, who do you say that I am here and in Matthew, I think it's good to call this the great question. The great question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, how important is this question? I guess it depends on what the answer is, right? Who is Jesus? I mean, look, think for a second. Who is Alexander the Great? How important is that question? Well, it depends on how great Alexander is, right? Who is Alexander the Great? Who is Jesus? The importance of that question depends on who he is. If he's a man, or if he's, as some people say, he's just a myth or legendary figure, then maybe the importance of the question of who is he might have some sociological sociological significance. But if he's more than that, if he's more than a myth and more than just a man, if he is the Messiah the Christ of God, as Peter boldly claims here in chapter 8, then this question has eternal significance. And our precision on answering this question is pretty darn important. We can't afford for approximate answers to this question. We can't afford approximation any more than a heart surgeon can afford to be approximately accurate. Who is Jesus? It's it's also important to note that most religions and worldviews in the last 2,000 years, have almost the same answer to this question. Who is Jesus? And I, I would probably say that many Christians, if not the vast majority of th- folks who profess themselves to be Christians, answer this question of who is Jesus almost correctly. And almost is not good unless you're okay with being almost alive. Here in Mark, Jesus kind of starts this question as we go back into this, with a little brain, you know, brainstorming session here. He says, well, who does everyone else say that I am? And he's unflattered when it, with a, one of the talk. You're one of the prophets. And even the, the grandiose assertions that he's John the Baptist or Elijah, okay, these are dudes who've been dead for a little while. And they're claiming, man, you're so great that you must be one of them, like reincarnated or something. He's not too thrilled about either. He gets jarringly personal when he says, but who do you? say that I am. And here Peter, Peter responds with that that sacred word, kind of a no-no unless you're right. He says, you are the Christ. It's that Greek use of the fulfillment of all the prophecies that have ever been spoken about the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the the promise of all eternity. That's who you are. Now that's, that's Peter's answer but what about you? The next several weeks, we're diving into this. What about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And I think that's what Jesus is pressing into you. The operative question of your life is, who do you say that Jesus is? And this isn't isn't something that Jesus needs to know for himself. That's also important. He's not confused about who he is. He's not on a, a PR campaign or a rebranding exercise. He's not having an identity crisis when he asks this question, who do you say that I am? He's not kind of maybe let's settle things by debate or an online social media survey and then you can decide who I am. He's pressing you because he wants to examine your faith like a good doctor. And your opinion isn't something he's necessarily looking for. It's not an intellectual exercise when he says, who do you say that I am? He's not just kind of wanting to know intellectually what you say or your opinion. Because, I mean, the, the simple point is, is your opinion about who he is doesn't really change who he is. Does that make sense? Like, if my wife and I are, are outside and it's a beautiful day, it's 70 degrees outside, right? And we're walking together and she says, man, it's freezing. No offense, sweetie, but it doesn't actually make it freezing if you say it's freezing. And on the other hand, either, if I say, man, it's a heat wave because I got my my big guy angst and my 200 pounds, and I feels really, really hot, it's still 70 degrees. And likewise, Jesus is who Jesus is. And when he asks you, who do you say that I am? It's more to, to press you and to evaluate and to see, are you feeling the warmth of my radiance? Are you feeling who I am? Or are you not receiving it? Because that's the important thing. Your opinion of him doesn't change the answer to the question when he asks the question. Your opinion of him does reveal, however, whose you are. And that's important to him because he wants to press you. Again, like a a good doctor or a loving father. And this question was already really strong on the disciples' minds. I want to go a little deeper into this. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back a few pages to the fourth chapter of Mark. And you'll see that this question of who Jesus is was already kind of a tense issue. They were really uncomfortable about asking this question. And we seem to get a little bit too comfortable with sacred things like this. Now, before chapter 4, they were super comfortable with Jesus. They'd been walking with him for a while. They'd seen him do some cool things but they were familiar with him. And they had a terrifying moment where their familiarity was put in check. Hello, that's, that's a good thing for all of us to experience. Any terrifying moments, difficult things that can put our familiarity in check. So in verse 35 of chapter four of Mark, it says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the sea. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, they took him, Jesus, in the boat it says, just as he was. I, I like that. It's not how they perceived him to be. It's just as he was. And the other boats were with him. Verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. That's a really great windstorm. And the boat was already filling. Okay, now that is scary. Verse 38, though, this is weird. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, in my opinion, the fact that they said teacher, and they referred to him as teacher, I think that that's significant. They're pretty familiar with him at this point, and they called him Rabboni, teacher. It's a, 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 a thing of honor to say, but it's, it reeks of familiarity. I think they were probably waking him to say, hey, why don't you be scared for your life with us? Join us in our panic. And so verse 39, he woke, Jesus woke up and rebuked, not the disciples, but the wind and the sea. He starts talking to the storm. So a terrifying moment for the disciples gets weird (laughs) with their teacher talking to the storm, but then it gets weirder because he talks to the storm. He says, peace, be still. And something weirder happens. The storm listened to him and obeyed. So in a moment, they're terrified for their lives. And then all of a sudden, they're even more terrified by Jesus. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And here comes the great question, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? This person that we thought we knew who he was, but who really is he that they he talks to the wind and the sea and they obey? Now, my question to you is, is are you so familiar with what you think you know about God that you're prevented from a moment of stepping in to know him heartily so that it rocks you to your core? You see, it's often the things that we think we know that prevent the knowing. Who is Jesus? Was he just a man? Was he just a good teacher? That's a a, a real common uh, idea in our culture today. But we have to stop for a minute and, and say, here's at least one thing. If he was just a good teacher, like a really nice guy, extra nice, why was he crucified? I mean, really nice teachers aren't really a threat to the religious elite or to Rome. But Jesus was a major threat and they killed him, verifiably. He was a threat, and they put him to death. Was he just a man? That's that's just not reasonable. Or was he just a myth? Is Dan Brown, is the Da Vinci Code onto something besides the prophet of gullible Americans like us? Is he just a myth? Now, this idea, surprisingly, has gained a lot of traction. But it's about as historically audacious as saying, like, Abraham Lincoln was a legendary figure, a myth, and he wasn't, and neither was Jesus. Jesus wasn't a myth, and Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ of God, as, as Peter says, as Peter says in Mark. Jesus is God himself. That's how great he is. He's infinitely great. Something we can't measure, we can't put enough accurate words to, but the thing is, is, there's two things about his greatness and the answer to this great question that really is a stumbling block for us. It's not only his infinite, mysterious greatness, but the thing about Jesus is he causes and demands people to live in light of his greatness. So it's the greatness that he is and the greatness that he calls you to. And think about it for a minute. Alexander the Great or Abraham Lincoln. One of the reasons people don't question their historicity is because they never said, you must die to your sin, take up your cross, and follow me. You see, they, they didn't enact a, transi- a, a transaction that demands all of you like Jesus does. But that's just what Jesus does His death, burial, and resurrection is all of Himself, and it really does demand all of you. That's why the great question is so touchy Who is Jesus? He demands all of you. But listen, he's given himself first. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died in our place. That's the great exchange. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God. And gaining in that the power to offer salvation to anyone who would turn, turn from lesser things, lesser thoughts, lesser ideas, lesser answers to this question, turn and believe the good news and receive the implications of that in your life. That's the good news. And the crux of the matter is this whole thing where what happened on the third day. Because it's an important thing to know that dead people tend to stay dead. I mean, we all know that. You, I don't, you don't have to go to medical school to know. Dead people tend to stay dead. But Jesus was verifiably dead, which that thing's been debated too, but we can get into that. And then he was verifiably not dead. And the point of that causes us to wonder, what does that mean to my life? In fact, check out this quote from Rice Brooks, the author of Man, Myth, Messiah, and the, also the author of God's Not Dead, and the co-producer of the movies that bear the same name. He says, Christianity stands or falls on a singular event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It not only is the foundation of credible faith, but the realistic hope of the suffocating uncertainty of what lies beyond the grave. You know, in the coming weeks, we're going to examine these claims, the evidence behind it, and the personal implications of it, regardless of how uncomfortable. Because just like Jesus resurrected from the dead to definitively answer the question of who he is and the great question, he's also applying it specifically by resurrecting us from the dead, if you let him. And my earnest desire is for people that aren't yet in a place where you know God to come with earnest questions and to see Jesus by his spirit answer them and to generate miraculously faith that you either agree to or not. But my other, my other hope is this, that folks who are already Christians, that you can process this question with all of yourself. Process it in a way that, that really reconstitutes a strength where you can go to the Bible with honest scrutiny and come away stronger. That's my desire for, for this month that we have ahead. But listen, as we, as we draw to a close today, my prayer is that none of us would almost process this great question like we're supposed to process it today. You know, the great question isn't a trivia question. And some of us can treat it like that. It's not a question that you answer with, with your words as much as with your life. Let me give you an example. If an alien from outer space, were to come down and observe your life, first of all, that would be pretty spooky. I don't think that would happen, but let's just say it happened. Observed your life, and they couldn't understand your words, right? What would he or she or it or whatever say about how you're answering the great question with your life? If all they could do is observe the proximity of the person of Jesus and what that means to your life, what would they say? Would they conclude that Jesus is important to you, like Starbucks is important to you? Or Netflix? Or March Madness? Or, you know, exercise, maybe a little better? Or would they conclude things like, your life is answering the great question accurately. When Jesus himself says, I am the living water, and I am the bread of life, well, does your life reflect that? Is your life answering the great question in a way that goes along with the the, the right answer? I grew up in word answering this question. Maybe I thought I had the right trivia answer, but my life and my perversions and my selfishness and the gods of my own sports and leisure and immorality, my my life was answering that I thought Jesus was more just like a a teacher And, and and a teacher that, I didn't really have any intention of applying their lessons any more than like geometry or anything like that. No offense to any math teachers in here. But I wasn't applying any of the lessons. I, I wasn't living my life as if the great question was that Jesus is the Messiah. I was my own savior and a bad savior at that. And then in high school, I was challenged by the gospel. And actually, in the middle of all this, one of my friends, Josh, sat me down in high school and he brought me to a place that confronted me with my familiarity with Jesus. And he brought me to a shocking point that Jesus said some things that made me feel really uncomfortable. He brought me to Matthew 7 on a Monday morning in September of 1997 in between A block block and B block. And he had me read this where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in essence, not everyone who has the right answer in word to the great question will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, many, that's a crazy idea. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, says Jesus, depart from me. I never knew you. That's scary right there. See, at that point, I was not only convinced that I didn't know God, though I knew some answers to trivia, but I was compelled and and convicted to, to know him, drawn with a miraculous joy to leave behind all the lesser things and come and really see not only that God is alive, but see him become alive in me. That next Wednesday, Jesus resurrected me. He brought me into a personal relationship with Jesus. With himself. Now, the thing is, there's a difference in knowing the answer technically to the great question versus actually knowing God personally for who He is. Would you pray with me, please? Jesus, help us to answer this question rightly. We need your help. Without your grace, All of our efforts to to do the right thing and to, to answer the question rightly is just more sin. But help us. If there's anyone here who doesn't yet know you, help him or her to call out to you. To enter into your life. Not just to invite you to be a part of their life alongside everything else, but really to step into your light by your power as you draw them. Help them even now as we're praying to call out to you. Your word says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's scandalously simple. God, even now, answer this question by your spirit and people. Help people to step into your life. They can tell their children. In Easter of 2016, I, I prayed before the Lord and something crazy happened. Lord, even now. And Lord, help the rest of us, all of us, to bravely prepare to do the work, to give a reason, as your word says, for the hope that we profess, that all the fears and evils out in the world out there, and even the, the anxieties that get close to home and work, that they would be crushed by a resurrection power that you work in us as we, as we press into you and you show yourself strong in us. Lord, you're calling people to specific nations, even through your power, even in this moment. And I'm asking you to do what only you can do. Revive your church as you answer this question for us. In Jesus' name, amen.